Thank you for downloading our podcast. Please be edified through this sermon from our pulpit supply while Pastor Paul Lindemulder enjoys a week off. Our text this morning is one of the first Good Friday services of the church. It's an episode in the time before the coming of Christ where we get a clearer picture of what Messiah will look like. Our modern print editors like to give this section of the Bible titles like Abraham is Tested, Abraham's Faith is Tested, God Tests Abraham, Abraham's Faith is Confirmed, or even, I believe our pew Bibles say, The Sacrifice of Isaac. And those are good titles, but a better title is this. Genesis 22 is Abraham's Good Friday Service. Yes, there's a test of Abraham. Yes, there's the faith of Abraham. Yes, there's a sacrifice of Isaac. But the point of this passage is that Abraham saw Christ's day from afar. He saw Christ's day, rejoiced, and was glad. God is calling Abraham to act out something that will happen 2,000 years in the future. And as he acts out the things God tells him to do, he's really proclaiming to us, his church, what he believes. He's proclaiming in whom he believes. And he's showing us whose day he sees from afar, the day of Christ. The test Abraham's undergoing is not a test of whether or not he believes, or even a test of how hard he believes. It's a test of what he believes. It's a test of in whom he believes. And so this passage is about the faith of Abraham, the faith once for all delivered, the faith that declares to us that the dead can be raised only in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Savior. This passage is not about the quality of Abraham's faith. It's about the content. It's about what he believes. So to give away the punchline like we read this morning, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back. So the Christian message from this passage, the the message that the Spirit has for his church In Genesis 22, and the message that Abraham speaks, even though he's dead, is this. Believe in the lamb that God has provided. Believe in the lamb God has provided. Abraham believed in the lamb of God, and so should you. We'll look at that in four points. First, the father's sacrifice. Secondly, the son's obedience. Third, Abraham trusts the father. And fourth, the son appears. The father's sacrifice, the son's obedience, Abraham trusts the Father, and the Son appears. So first, the sacrifice of the Father. Our passage this morning opens up with a call to worship and to duty. God, the creator and ruler of the world, calls Abraham into his presence. And Abraham responds with the faithful call of a servant. Abraham responds with duty. He says, here I am. And this is the God of gods demanding a sacrifice from Abraham. He demands a sacrifice because sacrifice creates relationship with him. And he commands that Abraham should make a burnt offering. What's special about a burnt offering? Well, a couple of things. First, a burnt offering is the Swiss army knife of sacrifices. A burnt offering is the kind of sacrifice that can do a couple different things. First, it can be part of an offering for sin. So in Psalm 40, a burnt offering is paired with a sin offering. In Psalm 40, burnt offerings and sin offerings go together. They do the same thing in different ways. 
So a burnt offering can be part of how you take away sin. But a burnt offering can also be an offering out of joy and, and, joy and obedience, like in Psalm 51. So in Psalm 51, a burnt offering is part of a right sacrifice. It's a, it, a right sacrifice is a fancy way of saying joyful obedience. So burnt offerings are also part of how you please God. They don't just take away the bad. They don't just make him no longer angry at you. Burnt offering also merits something. It puts something positive forward. It's part of the good you send up to him to please his nostrils. So a burnt offering satisfies God's wrath and gains God's favor. The Father's sacrifice not only purifies from sin, but it merits a positive relationship. It earns God's pleasure. The Father's sacrifice gets rid of sin and builds a positive relationship. It doesn't just take you out of the red. It puts you in the black. Well, what else is special about a burnt offering? A burnt offering is also special because the whole thing gets burnt up. That's why sometimes it's called the whole offering. Any other sacrifice, there's usually some kind of leftovers for the priest to eat. He has a fork in the temple specifically to stick it in the fire and pull out the roast And that's his portion. But with a burnt offering, the whole thing is turned into smoke. The only part that doesn't get turned into smoke is the hide. And so as this whole thing that's been turned into smoke goes up to heaven, it makes a link between the two places. It pleases God's nostrils and makes a link between heaven and earth. The Father's sacrifice gets completely consumed in order to open a way between the two places. The Father's sacrifice is his everything. Notice how God hits Abraham over the head again and again with what he's asking. He says, take your son, and then there's a, there's a marker there, a better way to translate this is, take your son, take your only son, take Isaac whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering on the mountain, I tell you. And to hammer the point even harder, the phrase, your only son, gets used three times in this chapter. Your only son, your only begotten. Take the person you love the most and sacrifice him completely. Isaac is Abraham's most precious treasure in this entire world. This is the son he waited for his whole life. This is the son around whom he has all the promises of God. This is the son around whom... God has made these promises, and these promises are the things Abraham has based his whole life upon. He's uprooted his whole life and lived in tents for this promised son. This is Isaac. This is the son Abraham had to choose over his older illegitimate son, Ishmael. This is the only miracle child Sarah will ever have. And he's the son on whom all the future of the nations of the earth depends. This is Abraham's everything, his only son, his only beloved begotten son, Isaac, whom he loves. And he's going to be turned into smoke and ash. The father's sacrifice is the one person he has loved the most in his entire existence. Abraham doesn't do half measures in making this sacrifice. He rises early in the morning. He gathers everything he needs. He cuts the wood himself. And when they get to the place, he leaves the young men at the bottom of the hill so that they can't stop him when they're at the top. He lays the wood on the back of his son 
He makes his son climb up the hill carrying the wood he's going to use to sacrifice him. The wood on which he'll be tied down to die. And then Abraham marches his only begotten son to a place where he will kill him. The father's sacrifice looks like the father giving his all to sacrifice his everything. It looks like the father actively, wholeheartedly orchestrating the death of his only begotten son. But the son isn't a useless spectator in this. He's not sitting on the sidelines. He's a participant in this plan. That brings us to point two, the son's obedience. At first glance, Isaac's question in our text might make him seem a little behind on things. They're already headed up the mountain, and then he asks, Father, where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? At first glance, that, that question looks a little bit like, great job, Sherlock, now deduce the rest. But that's not quite what's going on here. This is not a question that establishes Isaac's ignorance. It's a question that establishes his complicity, that he's in on it. This is a question that tells us Isaac knows what's going on. The son's obedience looks like knowing he is marching toward his own death at the hands of the father. It looks like the son knowing exactly what's about to happen and going anyway. And we know that because Isaac's in the prime of his life. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born, and that was a while ago because now not only is Isaac weaned and walking and talking, he's carrying a load of wood up the mountain. That takes some tone and definition. I wouldn't attempt any of these mountains out there as it is. And, and if I did, I probably wouldn't try and carry anything. Isaac's got a whole bonfire in his back. Hiking is hard, and he's carrying a significant amount of material. Isaac's in his prime. And Abraham is beyond geri- <laughs> so sorry. <coughs> Abraham is beyond geriatric. He is older than dirt. If Abraham's going to pull off tying his son down to this wood and killing him, he's going to need more than passive cooperation from Isaac. He's going to need Isaac's help. He's going to need the son to submit to his death. The son's obedience looks like obeying his father to the point of death on the wood that he is carrying up the hill. And we know that from verses 6 and 8. If you have your Bibles, look again at verses 6 and 8, and you'll notice something. You'll notice that in verse 6, before Isaac asks the question, the text says they went up together. They acted as one. They went, both of them, together. The son's obedience looks like being in on the father's plan to sacrifice him because even after he asks this question, this question in verse 7, my father, here I am, my son, behold the fire in the wood, where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Even after this question, even after Abraham says God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son, it says this, they both went together. They went, both of them, together together. So even after it's obvious they've brought, a, they've brought an Isaac but not a lamb, Isaac still continues. The son's obedience looks like perfect unity of purpose with the father in this plan to kill the son. The son's obedience looks like him being a willing participant in his gory, violent, and wasteful death as the father's sacrifice. But that brings us to point three. Abraham trusts the father. 
Abraham knows that something more, something special is going on here. He knows that he is acting out something that God will actually do. Some people are historical reenactors. They get together in a park, and they're very nice people, and you get to meet other history buffs, and they dress up in clothes from times past. They always have cool swords, and there's always somebody selling soap. But historical reenactment is easy. Historical reenactment is easy because we've seen how the story goes. It happened way back there in the past, and then we just have to copy it. In our passage this morning, Abraham's doing something a little bit harder. Abraham is acting out history that hasn't happened yet. You might say he's an historical pre-enactor. He's pre-enacting future history. He is pre-enacting a day to come, a day he sees from afar, a day that makes him rejoice. Abraham saw my day. He rejoiced and was glad to see it. Abraham trusts that what God has asked him to do God will actually do. He knows that Isaac won't have to die because God will sacrifice his Messiah. He sees the day of Christ. And we know that from verse 5. So verse 5 is well translated in our Bibles, but a clearer translation of verse 5 would go something like this. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, we will go over there. And we will worship, and we will come again to you. Abraham believed that he was about to see a resurrection from the dead. It hasn't happened yet, but he knows what God has promised. He knows that God will send his Messiah, and his Messiah will raise the dead. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. And that's because as Abraham marches toward Moriah, as he's, marching toward the, as he's marching toward this mountain he sees from afar, he's marching toward a mountain where David will reign one day. He's marching toward a mountain where Solomon will build a temple. And he's marching toward a mountain where there's a place, a hill that looks like a where Messiah will be crucified. Because as he marches to Mount Moriah, he's marching toward a place where the name is going to change. The name is going to be changed to Zion. Abraham is marching toward the mount of God's redeeming love. He lifts his eyes and he sees it from afar. And as Abraham heads there, he trusts the Father. He trusts that God will keep the promises he's made, even though all he has so far is a shadowy sketch and not all the details are there yet. Abraham knows that he is pre-enacting what Yahweh will do. And that's because of the wording in our chapter. The wording in our chapter has actually been pretty interesting up to this point because even though Yahweh is the covenant God of this entire passage, Notice the first use of the name Yahweh. In verses 1 through 10, his name, his covenant name is never used. In verses 1 through 10, the name that God has gone by is God, his general name. God the creator, God the judge, and God the ruler. This is the word everybody uses for him. In verses 1 through 10, Yahweh's covenant name has not come into this passage And so Abraham knows he's acting out the scene in the future that will make God the covenant God of his people, make them I am to them. He is pre-enacting a future day. 
He knows he's pre-enacting the sacrifice that will make God one with his people, or in, in union with his people, in communion with his people. He knows he's pre-enacting the sacrifice that will make peace between heaven and earth. He knows he's pre-enacting the sacrifice that will take away sin and merit a positive relationship, merit the right to be called children of God. Abraham trusts the Father's promise because he has already lived through Genesis 15. Abraham remembers the night where God promised Abraham everything and Abraham did nothing. He remembers the night where God walked through the two halves twice, the bleeding animal carcasses, to show Abraham that he would keep up both ends of the deal. Abraham knows that God is teaching him more about how he's going to redeem his people and make them his. He knows this is a pre-enactment. It's part of how God will unfold the mystery of the gospel, the mystery of the story of Jesus Christ, hidden in the ages, made plain now, the plan to redeem his people. See, that's the center of our text. The center of our text is not about whether or not Abraham believes. We don't believe that this text teaches the doctrine of Rome, the doctrine of Rome that says faith is, well, you need to look and work and, and try hard enough and do hard things so that you can hope God's pleased with how hard you trust. This is not the doctrine of this text. This text does not teach the doctrine of Rome. This text isn't about the quality of Abraham's faith. It's not the teaching of some of our American church neighbors, you know, something along the lines of, if you believe hard enough on the mountains, God will bless you with rams of prosperity. This text is way more beautiful than that. It's about what, Ab it's about what Abraham believes. Abraham believes in Good Friday. Abraham believes in the day to come where God will send his only beloved begotten son whom he loves because he so loved the world. Abraham is looking forward to the day when the father will lay the wood on his son's back and march him up the hill, the same hill, and bind him to the wood on which he will sacrifice him and sacrifice him completely so that he can be the covenant God of his people, so that he can be known in Israel, known to his people, known to his church, so that he can be I am to them, so that we can know him personally by his covenant name and by his heart for his people. Verse 8 is always looking forward to verse 14. What's verse 14? Verse 14 is significant because Abraham marches up this hill saying, God will provide. And he comes back down saying, the Lord will provide. Yahweh will provide. Verse 8 is always looking for verse 14. When the angel says, because you have done this, he's not talking about Abraham earning something. He's not talking about Abraham believing hard enough. He's talking about Abraham believing in Good Friday. Abraham acted out what he knew was true. The father will send his only son. And that brings us to point four, finally. Point four, the son appears. The first time God's covenant name comes up in this passage is no coincidence. God's covenant name comes into this passage at the exact same time that the Son appears, the true Son, the angel of the Lord. Who's the angel of the Lord? He's the Word before he was made flesh. He's this character throughout the Old Testament who's the Son, one with the Father well before he was born of a woman. 
He's the commander of the Lord's army that appeared to Joshua with his sword drawn and fought for his people. He's the one who blocked Balaam's path when Balaam went to curse the people. He had his sword drawn. This is the one in the book of Judges who every time he's seen in the book of Judges, the people fall on their face and worship and sacrifice and say, we might die because we've seen God. And he's the angel of the Lord in Zechariah who stands before the court of Yahweh and pleads mercy for God's people based on the promises of the covenant. This is the angel of Yahweh and he is the lamb that Yahweh will provide. This is the true son that appeared. And we know that because of verse 12. Verse 12, I know you fear God because you've not withheld your son from me. Why can the angel of the Lord say from me? Because he's the son. The reason that Abraham won't have to sacrifice Isaac and the reason Isaac won't have to die is because the father provided his son, his only beloved son. The father sacrificed and the son obeyed. The son said, I will go and die on this mountain. And so the son of God, the angel of the Lord, appeared at Abraham's Good Friday service to tell him, I will die on this mountain instead. This is what Abraham believed, that he and his son would be raised from the dead by the lamb that Yahweh provided. And so they name the place Yahweh will provide because they know on this very mountain Yahweh will provide his lamb. They're killing a ram for now, but someday the real lamb of God will be back. The son, the angel of the Lord, will take on human flesh and he will trudge up this mountain and obey his father, carry the wood that the father is going to use to kill him and know the whole time that that's what's going to happen, that he will be the whole offering on top of this hill that he will be completely consumed to make peace between God and man, God and his people, to make us his and to make him ours. The son appeared in this text and he will appear again. He will possess the gates of his enemies and sin and death and hell will not stand against him because he will conquer death. The son appeared and he'll appear again through the descendants of Abraham and Isaac. And that's why this list of names at the end of the chapter is so important. The last four verses can seem a lot like they're a distraction, like they're breaking up the action, and that they're just there for background information. And why would Pastor Jeff read that? Just cut it off before these last four. But this list of names is important because it's part of the point of this story. The point of this story is that Abraham believed in the son's coming, and now at the end of the chapter... The son's coming is being facilitated. The son's coming is happening. Because in the middle of that long list of names, we have this aside statement. Our, our translators put it in parentheses. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. The Messiah's line is moving forward. This is another mother of the Messiah's line. The story of the son's appearance is going forward because another one of the ancestors of the son of God has come onto the scene. The son is going to appear through this line, this line that believed in him, that believed he would appear. So what does Abraham have to say to us even though he's dead? He says, believe in the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Believe in the sacrifice of the Father. Believe in the obedience of the Son. And rest in the Son who has appeared and lived 
and died and risen and sat at the right hand of God the Father for you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for subscribing and listening to our podcast. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.